Hello, everybody. Heartfelt greetings to you all on this, the 18th day of August. This is the One Year Bible Tour Guide podcast. My name is David McAdam, and we are glad to have you with us as we start out on today's Bible reading journey. We have the prospect of stepping out into the 17th book of the Old Testament today, the book of Esther. This is a book that our Jewish friends read through twice on the Festival of Purim, commemorating God's providential work of delivering the entire Jewish race from the wicked plot of Haman the Agagite, who plotted for their extermination on the 13th day of Adar. It is further proof that God's purpose to bring forth the Messiah through the people of his covenant would not be thwarted. It is a book of many ironies in which the tables are ultimately turned on the forces of evil. A classic example of this is when the perpetrator of this heinous plot, Haman, is put to death on the very gallows that he built to impale Mordecai, the intercessor and adoptive kinsman of Queen Esther. This is a potent foreshadowing of the ultimate death blow given to Satan and the overthrow of the rulers of this age when they connive to put Christ to death. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, We speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So hang on tight as we start to read today's portion from the one-year Bible, starting with the book of Esther, then continuing with Paul's first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 11, and continuing with Psalm 35 and Proverbs chapter 21. Esther chapter 1, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. The King's Banquets. Esther chapter 1, verse 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, one hundred and eighty days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion." For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zether, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. 
Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shether, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marsena, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Medea, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti, because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day the noble women of Persia and Medea, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household, and speak according to the language of his people. Chapter 2. Esther Chosen Queen After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti, and what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. 
Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being twelve months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shahasgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go in to the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Chapter 3 Haman Plots Against the Jews After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. When Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. 
and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. And this is the end of our reading of today's portion from the Old Testament and from the book of Esther. Now let's examine how the book of Esther fits into the biblical record of God's redemptive work in history. The accounts of First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are historically linked in that they are written with the restoration period in view, that is, the return of God's people from their captivity and their restoration to God's purpose to make their lives speak to the nations of His holiness and plan of salvation. In First and Second Chronicles, God's testimony is expressed through the temple and its functions. His presence, His holiness, His justice, His priesthood, and His mercy have been tragically lost in the book of Chronicles. The writer, probably Ezra, reminded the people of what was lost through their disobedience, the blessing of God's presence and His testimony in the temple, specifically the Ark of the Covenant. In the book of Ezra, the book of Ezra gives the account of the restoration of the altar and temple building, a project led by Zerubbabel. After the events in the book of Esther take place, Ezra will lead a delegation to restore the teaching of the Word of God to the nation. The Book of Nehemiah The Book of Nehemiah describes the restoration of the walls that helped to maintain the purity of their testimony as a distinct, separate, holy people. And now the Book of Esther. The Book of Esther describes the restoration of God's people from the sentence of death. The events take place between chapters 6 and 7 of the Book of Ezra. The action takes place among the Jews who remained behind in Persia after the Persian kings had given permission for them to return, but the implications of their actions were far-reaching, providing for the salvation of all the Jews and the Gentiles as well, as it preserved the messianic line that led to the birth of Christ. So to recap, the book of Chronicles record the tragedy of what was lost, while Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther record how God's purposes are restored and preserved. The book of Esther is the story of those Jews who did not return with Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. 
Many of them had become owners of property and successful businesses and had grown comfortable in Persia and Babylon. Without the divine intervention described in the book of Esther, there would be no restoration. The deliverance from the sentence of death described in the book of Esther makes possible the later returning remnants led by Ezra and Nehemiah. Martin Luther did not think that the book of Esther should be included in the Bible. Why? Because God receives no mention in the story. There are no references to worship, heaven, or hell. Prayer is implied as a complement to fasting, but prayer is not explicitly mentioned. There is no prediction of the coming of the Messiah. The book of Esther is not quoted in the New Testament, so why is it in the Bible? At face value, this book is an account of a most unusual turn of events in history that result in the deliverance of the Jews from a death sentence and the unrighteous rule of the prime minister of Persia, Haman. It also explains the founding of the Feast of Purim. But hidden in the story is the central character. God is at work. He is behind the scenes, moving the scenes. The story is about God's hidden works of deliverance, His providence and His power providing deliverance for His people. Even in a pagan country where people are given over to superstition, the one true God proves Himself to be God over all. While others roll the dice, like Haman and his sons do in this story, in order to find the lucky day to carry out their evil plan, God proves He is sovereign over all, even those things that might appear to have occurred by chance. In Proverbs 16.33 we read, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. This is a true story. It is a relevant story. The story of Esther is played out in history, and we see His story, that is God's redemptive history, played out in the story of Esther. Hidden also in the pages of this book is your story. The book holds up a mirror to the condition of our souls. As we study this book, we will discover the power of God to deliver us from internal bondages and external dangers. We will see that our placement in our current circumstances, relationships, and spheres of influence is no accident, and that God works together with those who love Him and are called in everything to the good of His purposes, as described in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Why is the book of Esther in the Bible? It is a story to give us hope. Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, in chapter 15, verse 4, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Esther in History The book covers the events from the third year to the twelfth year of the reign of Xerxes, approximately a decade from 483 to 473 B.C. This story takes place during the period known as the Babylonian Captivity after the fall of Babylon to the Medo-Persian Empire. Some Jews who did not return to Jerusalem to build the temple remained settled in Susa, the headquarters of the Persian Empire. The story of Esther begins in the third year of the reign of a Persian king known as Ahasuerus. The Hebrew text follows a transliteration of the Persian Akashverosh. Ahasuerus is a title such as Tsar, the Caesar or Kaiser, Pharaoh or the Shah, meaning Venerable Father. There are three kings designated by this name in Scripture. First, the father of Darius the Mede, mentioned in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. This was probably Siah Xerxes I, 
who was known as Ahasuerus in history, the king of Medea and the conqueror of Nineveh. Number two, the king mentioned in Ezra chapter 4, verse 6, probably Cambyses, the son and successor of Cyrus, in 529 B.C. And thirdly, Xerxes, the son of Darius Hystaspes, Darius the Great, is most likely the king named in the book of Esther. He ruled over the kingdoms of Persia, Medea, and Babylonia, from India to Ethiopia. This was in all probability the Xerxes who succeeded his father Darius in 485 B.C. In the Septuagint version of the book of Esther, the name of Artaxerxes occurs for Ahasuerus. He reigned for 21 years, from 586 to 465 B.C. He invaded Greece with an army, it is said, of more than two million soldiers, only 5,000 of whom returned with him. Leonidas, with his famous 300, arrested his progress at the Pass of Thermopylae, and then was defeated disastrously by Themistocles at Salamis. It was after his return from this invasion that Esther was chosen as his queen in 479 to 478 B.C. The story takes place at the height of the Persian Empire when Persian rule extended from the river Indus in India to the Nile in northern Ethiopia. The story is well corroborated with archaeological evidence. Archaeologists have uncovered ruins at Susa and have found many of the things we read about in this book. For example, the King's Gate in chapter 4 verse 2, the Inner Court in chapter 5 verse 1, the Outer Court in chapter 6 verse 4, the Palace Garden in chapter 7 verse 7, and even the dice which they call poor, with which they cast lots in chapter 3 verse 7. The book of Esther is one of the best archaeologically verified books in the Old Testament. It is also helpful to learn about this period of history from the Greek perspective from other writings, especially those of Herodotus. Another one of the many ironies found in the story is that it is Esther's stepson, Artaxerxes, who becomes the most generous sponsor of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. The story is told in the previous book in the Bible, the book of Nehemiah. His story in Esther. God is in the story of Esther, although you do not find his name written on the scroll. His fingerprints are everywhere as he engineers circumstances to provide the deliverance of his people. God's name, the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, is actually hidden in acrostic form in several verses. Yahweh is hidden in an acrostic in Esther chapter 5 verse 4. At the crisis moment demanding God's providential help, the name Yahweh was purposefully encrypted in the Hebrew words, Let the king and Haman come this day. The Hebrew letters forming the name Yahweh begin each of the four Hebrew words, Let come the king and Haman this day. Here the letters forming the name of Yahweh, Y-H-V-H, the Tetragrammaton, begin each of the four Hebrew words. God's name is hidden in the scroll. Even Esther's name means hidden, according to the Hebrew scholar Gesenius. God is the deliverer in the book of Esther, and the story points to the greater deliverance that God provides for his people through the cross of Christ. Jesus said that all of the Tanakh, the law, the prophets, and the writings, testify of him. 
they speak of what he came to accomplish in dying to redeem us from our death sentence under the law and to provide deliverance from the unrighteous rule of sin that holds us in bondage in john chapter 5 verse 39 luke chapter 24 verse 44 luke chapter 9 verse 31 matthew chapter 1 verse 21 hebrews chapter 2 verse 15 as the jewish people who saw their appointed day of death the thirteenth day of adar turned to a day of rejoicing, the Feast of Purim, we too can say with the Apostle Paul, He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will continue to deliver us. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 Jesus is our Deliverer. Literally, Yeshua means God to the rescue. He is our truer and greater intercessor and advocate, our truer and greater Mordecai, our truer and greater Esther. Jesus said, It is written about me in the scroll, the Megillah, I have come to do your will, O God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7. With Jesus, it was not a matter of if I perish, I perish, in Esther 4, verse 16, but I have come to lay down my life, in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Whereas in the book of Esther, Mordecai states, And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this? Jesus knew that he came for the appointed hour to accomplish our exodus at Jerusalem. We read of this in Luke chapter 9, verse 31, Mark chapter 14, verse 41, and John chapter 12, verses 23 through 25. We were all in Adam when Adam sinned, and therefore we were all given the death sentence in him. We were born spiritually dead to God and alive to the rule of sin, the prime minister, Haman, in our hearts. We were all born conspirators against the king, like Bigthan and Teresh. We should have been nailed to the tree, like Bigthan and Teresh were. We should have been hung on the gallows, like Haman and his sons. But Jesus died for us and as us. He rose from the dead on the third day and entered into God's holy presence to plead mercy on our behalf. Because of sin, it is appointed for men once to die and then the judgment. Jesus took our appointment in death, saying yes to the Father's plan, and like Esther, he appears before the throne as our advocate on the third day. By virtue of his mediation, there can be a change of government, so we are no longer under the rule of sin, that is represented by Haman, but under the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, represented by the second man Mordecai. We are given the right to defend ourselves against the attack of the lawless ones and celebrate the victory that has been granted. On the day we should have died, we live. When we should be mourning, we rejoice. When we should have been fasting, we are feasting. When we should have been plundered, we are sharing our portions with one another and giving out of our abundance to the poor. O oh, happy day when Jesus washed my sins away. He has reversed the curse and set us free from our enemies. As you can see, there is much gospel truth to glean from the book of Esther, and God willing, we'll continue tomorrow. Now let's move on to our New Testament reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning with verse 17, and we will read through to verse 34. The Lord's Supper But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating each one goes ahead with his own meal, 
One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together it will not be for judgment. About the other things I will give directions when I come. And this is the end of our reading from the New Testament portion from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Paul addresses the divine discipline that was being brought upon the Corinthians for the manner in which they were observing the Lord's Supper. Rather than giving evidence to their being united in the death of Christ and united as those who partake of the same life, there were shameful divisions among them. There were also instances of people seeing the Lord's Supper as only another occasion of self-indulgence. The agape feasts, as the church suppers were called, became occasions for gluttony, selfishness, and drunkenness. These church dinners would culminate with the remembrance of where their community life came from, their common participation in the death and life of the Lord Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who sacrificed himself to bring about our reconciliation to the Godhead. They failed to wait for one another at the Lord's table, failing to see what the supper was all about. Are we conscious of the fact that we are demonstrating the unity of God's people when we gather together? Therefore, let us love, respect, and be patient with one another, Let us bear with one another. Let us encourage one another. Now for our next stop, we continue to read Psalm 35, beginning with verse 17, and we read through to verse 28. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng I will praise you. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, And let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, Aha! Aha! Our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord. Be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God. 
according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our heart's desire. Let them not say, We have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. These verses in Psalm 35 should encourage us to pray. Stir up yourself and awake to my right and to my cause, my God and my Lord. In verse 23, I am reminded of the song by Mark Altrogi that we love to sing, O faithful God, you lift me up and you uphold my cause. Now to the book of Proverbs, chapter 21, verses 19 to 21. It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. Here, once again, is a good reminder to be careful whom you marry. It is better to live in a desert land than when a contentious and vexing woman. How do you treat what is truly valuable in your life? Protect and preserve God's blessings and share them with others. Beware the trap of seeking instant gratification, hoarding, and self-indulgence. There is precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man swallows it up. These proverbs pose two questions. Are we contentious or vexing personalities? Do we properly steward our resources? Let's pray. Gracious Father, may we never forget your goodness. Your glorious works are often hidden from our eyes. Help us to take you at your word, trusting that all you have promised in your word will come to pass in your perfect timing. Thank you for the great deliverance that you have accomplished for us in Christ and for the hidden work that you are doing in our lives today by your Spirit. Give us the courage to play our part in your plan for such a time as this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining with us on our Bible reading journey. If this podcast is a blessing to you, or if you have any questions or comments, you can always contact us by email. Our email address is podcast at newlife.org. And if you would like to receive a free written copy of each day's commentary on the one-year Bible readings of the day with charts, illustrations, and maps, you can subscribe by going to our website, newlife.org. And there you can also learn about New Life's ministries, download free growth tools, such as how to know God personally. And don't forget to subscribe or follow this one-year Bible tour guide wherever you get your podcasts. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. Shalom.